the role of the entrepreneur is to turn problems into opportunities. I, I, right at, at the end of the day, that's what we do as entrepreneurs. We, we, we say, man, that's a, you know, 90% of the world says, man, that's a problem. But the 10% that are entrepreneurs go, I'm going to fix that problem and make a, a, a lot of value. I'm going to create a lot of value. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Lewis and Kyle show an interview podcast where usually two hosts, Lewis and Kyle, myself being Lewis, bring on really interesting entrepreneurs, investors, authors, content creators, other people doing extraordinary things that we find fascinating. This episode is a bit different than typical. Kyle was sick, so it's just me in this episode. We still had a great conversation. I interviewed someone named Rob Fraska, who's been a tech investor and tech entrepreneur since the early 90s. His first company, Galt, was one of the very first financial services on the internet, and he's been innovating on the frontier and very interesting online type applications ever since. He was involved in online chat software that is now used in games like Fortnite. Uh, and by chat, I mean like live conversations with voices, not text. He has an investment firm called Cosimo, which invests in crypto projects and a bunch of other interesting tech applications. This conversation discusses kind of advice and experience from his 30 years, give or take, in tech entrepreneurship, tech investing, some of his predictions for the future of crypto, some things he'd like to see, some of the theses he has for 2022. And if any of those things sound interesting to you, I'm sure you will enjoy this conversation. So I'm going to switch over to it right now. Rob, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. No Kyle today. He's got COVID, unfortunately. Uh, but thank you so much for being here and being flexible with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm sorry to hear it. Sorry to hear about Kyle. That's a bummer. He'll, he'll be all right. I, I texted him last night. I was like, are you going to live? Like, do I actually need to be concerned about you or just like feel kind of bad? He's like, I'll be fine. So it's crazy out there. It's crazy. It is crazy out there. So I want to kind of structure this interview. You've got a really pretty long and impressive story in tech and investing and startups. Um, and we'll get into that as kind of some context for some crypto questions and general discussion we'll get into towards the end. I want to ask you about kind of the position in life you're in when you're starting your first startup. I don't know if it's Galt or Galt, uh, but like what was your age? What was your motivation for starting it? Kind of what was the things you'd done before that? Kind of just walk me through your first kind of real entrepreneurial endeavor, uh, if that, assuming that's your first one. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, so I've always been an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, when I was in when I was in high school, I was always an entrepreneur. It's kind of in my blood. I think people generally tend to, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs tend to have it in their blood. Um, I, I flew jets for the Navy of, of all things. Uh, and I was at Carnegie Mellon uh, back in the nineties and I was getting my MBA at night and I saw the internet emerge and I was completely blown away. Now this is 1993 and I decided to start a company uh, with another gentleman. His name is Joel Mask. He and I started a company called Galt Technologies and Galt is actually after who is John Galt, which is Ayn Rand's book, uh, Atlas Shrugged. So that's the reference there. And we uh, started the very first financial service on the internet. First stock quote server, first mutual fund site. Uh, we had the exclusive for a lot of financial information on the internet. Uh, and this was back in the day when people didn't even know what the internet was. I, I used to spend my, my days saying, you know, this is what www dot, you know, what's dot com mean? And, you know, this, that's how early, uh, how early it was. But at the time I was married, uh, had a baby on the way, uh, and, uh, you know, you're trying to, trying to pay bills you're going, holy cow, I'm going to start a company and we need to raise money. And how are we going to do this? So it was quite, uh, quite the, uh, uh, quite the experience as a 28, you know, 28 year old guy. Wow. So that's, that's going to be one of the questions as well as how old you were. 
Uh, were you a builder in this project as far as like hands-on technology as well? Or were you kind of like, you know, you're also an MBA, so you know you had a bought a couple devs or yeah so back then devs are pretty hard to uh hard to come by right so it wasn't uh you know today development is very much kind of a, a lego block uh type of approach uh you know being fortunate that i was at carnegie mellon which is a bastion of geekery i had a lot of friends of mine in the comp high school uh that could that could help so I, I'm, I'm, I know how to code. I'm an engineer, uh, undergrad. You know, I know technology pretty well. Uh, I definitely know when an engineer is blowing smoke in my face. Uh, so I can, I can be a pretty good judge of tech. Uh, but ultimately, I did need to hire in serious, you know, technologists to come in. You know, we actually had to run fiber to the little office that we had and put a router in the basement. It wasn't like you just plug into the internet back then when you run a, a server. There was no AWS. You had to spool up a server, Unix box. You had to, you had to really know what the heck you were doing. Not that you don't have so, to know what you, the heck you're doing today, but it was no. But you can go from zero to deployment in a few hours. That's right. For that's right. Pocket change. That's right. So. Or oftentimes free. Yeah. I mean, you know, the first the step of starting, yeah, the first step of starting my company was I needed twenty-two thousand dollars to buy a Cisco router, and I didn't have twenty-two thousand dollars to buy a Cisco router. So my partner and I, the very first contract that we sold uh, to a mutual fund company, they asked us, "Well, how much does how much does it cost?" And we said, oh, well, let's see, 22, you know, in our head, we we're doing the math and it was, okay, 40,000. They said, all right, we'll give you 30. And we, 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 we made enough money to uh, basically buy the, the router. Uh, and that, then we had to buy a Unix box on top of that. So it was, uh, it was an interesting time, but yeah, it was hand to mouth. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty funny how those early decisions are made. People think there's so much, you know, there's like this serious calculation and spreadsheets or whatever, but you're like, you know, we need this much money. So that's how much it costs. Yeah. Well, that was, uh, that was me as a 28 year old first time entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that might be something I want to get into later. Cause I've, you know, heard you speak on other podcasts that you really look to, uh, you know, the, the past experience of the team for first time founders for second time founders. I'm curious what things you might look at in uh, first time founders, if, and when you're considering them, I, I think uh, I would you not entertain that super often. I look for passion. I look for this, uh, you know, everybody looks at successful entrepreneurs and generally all we see is the successes. But we, we sell, we promote our successes. We put them out there. We talk about them. Most people don't talk about their failures and most people don't talk about the number of failures. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, I would say that success to failure ratio for real successful people is probably 10 to 1, meaning that your average guy out there who's really successful has probably failed 10 times for every one success. And so what I look for in first time founders is kind of the 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 perseverance and passion to basically motor through those 10 failures until you get to that one success. And it's, it's a constant loop of success and failure, success and failure. And you can't be daunted by people saying no, you can't be daunted by failures. You just, and, and I, that's what I really, I, I really look for. I look for that. I look for leadership. Are they leaders? Do they make things happen? Uh, and um, do they listen? A lot of guys have big egos. A lot of women they come in, and entrepreneurs they have these big egos, and they don't they they're not they're not listening. They're they're not open for coaching. They're not opening for help. Uh, they're just I know everything, and they got to prove it. Uh, 
those are tough. Those are tough people to work with. Those are tough people to, uh, you know, sometimes they're super successful, but uh, what we found is, is that most times they're not. You, you, you get humble real quick as, a, as an entrepreneur. So do you become actively involved in your companies in like some kind of management capacity or board advisory through Cosmos? Yeah, so, so, really so Cosmos, yeah. Cosmos yet, so. yeah, so Cosmo is a venture fund uh, and it's tokenized venture fund. We're all in on blockchain, all in. Uh, we can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is invest in, you know, really solid opportunities or projects or companies. Um, and uh, for us, it's about scale. There's only four of us. So we can't, we can't be actively involved in every single deal, uh, every single company that we invest in. We just do not enough hours in the day. So what we tend to do is uh, pick a few that we really, uh, we, we lead the investment in, we're excited about, we like the team, and we will try to help out and get involved with those companies in every way we can. The other ones where we're not sitting on the board or we're not super active, we'll still always uh, help out uh, in every way possible that, that we can uh, because it's a team effort. It's not just about, as, a, as an investor, it's not just about giving somebody some cash, some capital. It's really about giving them everything they can so that they, they'll be successful. Yeah, that's a probably the best way you can break it down based on, you know, just the reality of how much time is available to you yeah. and the amount of projects that are of interest to you. I, I think it's you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's important um, as entrepreneurs when they look for capital. It, a lot of times people just say, oh, I raise money and they don't really care about where they're raising the money from. And, and, and I think that's a mistake. I think you want to really understand who you're raising the money from, how they can help you. And, and more importantly, what are their values? So, you know, uh, when you have to when you have to make a payroll, when you lie in bed at night wondering how the heck am I going to make this payroll, when you take that great pride in signing the front of a paycheck, right, meaning you're giving somebody a paycheck as an entrepreneur and you understand the responsibility of that, that's 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 huge. And I think having investors that also understand those things who've been there who understand what it means to lie awake at night going, holy cow, am I gonna be able to do this? That goes a long way versus a purely financial investor that's never lived that. Uh, and, and so as entrepreneurs, I think it's important that you understand where where you're raising your money from. Definitely, makes a huge difference. I wanna ask about some of the kind of predictions and theses you might have in some of the portfolio companies. Uh, let's start with like, DeFi on Bitcoin, because that's something I don't think it's talked about a lot. I saw you're an investor in Sovereign. Can you kind of explain uh, the thought process behind that investment, the you know Bitcoin on DeFi or De DeFi for Bitcoin narrative and like straight up Bitcoin uh, versus like kind of like the Ethereum wrapped Bitcoin kind of universe? Yeah, well, first, for, first of all, I would say that our belief is that blockchain as a whole represents the single most, the single largest value creation event in our lifetime. I say this over and over again. That, that's, that's almost my tagline. And I, I was fortunate having built a bunch of companies through .com and through mobile and in and, and, and a variety of different, uh, different you know, markets. And I believe that what blockchain really is going to do is, is really create that decentralized value layer that the internet, that our networked world so, so badly needs. And blockchain as a whole is going to permeate everything. Uh, 
anywhere there's trust, uh, blockchains, mm -hmm. decentralized trust solutions are going to permeate. It just so happens that Bitcoin was the first one out there. It really illustrated how blockchain could work. It's it, it, it you know, it's 46 depends on the day you look between 46 and 50% of the market. And so you can't over you can't overlook it. And so we believe that just given the mass uh, and the liquidity and the amount of value stored in Bitcoin, that it's it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. However, it's also first, and there are a lot of problems that uh, with the original solutions, just like in the early days of the internet, you had a lot of problems, and those problems need to be addressed. The role of the entrepreneur is to turn problems into opportunities. I, I, right? At, at the end of the day, that's what we do as entrepreneurs. We, we, we say, man, that's a, you know, 90% of the world says, man, that's a problem. But the 10% that are entrepreneurs go, I'm going to fix that problem and make a, a, a lot of value. I'm going to create a lot of value. And so Sovereign was one of those where we saw, uh, you know, how, how do you how do you bring, uh, uh, you know, Bitcoin into kind of an ETH, you know, into a native, uh, native DeFi world? I think it's a transitional technology. And 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 so we said, you know, hey, let's place a let's place a bet there. Very cool. Uh, backtracking for a second, you mentioned that, you know, your company is tokenized or investments are tokenized, you know, which increases the access. Are those tokens on a blockchain? Because I know it's through a company called Securitize. Yeah. Or are they just tokens, but not like blockchain backed? They're, they're, ETH, they're based on Ethereum. Uh, Securitize is the platform that, that basically puts that uh, uh, token together. Uh, we're, we're a security and so we're not, you know, we have to, we have to deal with all of the SEC requirements and the regulatory compliance requirements worldwide, right? This is a global phenomenon. It's not just the U S so our, our fund, basically what we did was we, if you think about a fund, it's a portfolio of investments, just kind of like a mutual fund and it has a net asset value, which is the value of the fund. And all we did was basically create digital shares or security tokens and, and Securitize was the company that did it uh, for us. They're the ones that issue it. So you go to Securitize, you do your, you know, your customer, your KYC, your anti-money laundering, AML accreditation in the US. And it, it, it does that whole process and then it issues the uh, the security token. And then you can you can store the security token in your MetaMask or your Coinbase Pro wallet or or uh, what have you. We, we believe- How do you prevent a, in, like a shareholder or a token holder to like transfer their token to someone non-accredited? No, you can't. If it's like- No, no, yeah. you can't. So what- You have to interface through through the Securitized platform? Uh, no, you can. Um, what's really cool about these security to uh, token platforms is they're actually building compliance into the smart contract. And okay. so, um, so for our token to be transferred, um, it, it needs like whitelisted addresses. Yep, or something. that's right. And then um, there are a number of broker dealers that that's, that Cosmo X is available on Texture out of New York, Texture Capital, uh, Black Manta out of Europe. We're an investor in them. Uh, Invest X out of Singapore. We just went. So those are kind of what I would say primary issuance. So you go to the broker dealer, they do the KYC AML, and then they issue the token through Securitize to their customer. That's kind of the broker dealer okay. relationship. But then there, and that's on kind of the issuance of the token, meaning per, you're, you're buying it from us, the money goes into the fund. 
Whereas let's say that um, you wanted to, you, you bought your token or you, you wanted to buy your token from somebody else. You could trade that token uh, from somebody else. And then the, the actual compliance uh, is, is taken care of uh, through a whitelist type of situation. Um, so you could sell, you, you know, for instance, in the U.S., you have to be accredited, whereas in Ireland, you don't. So, so you could be in the U.S. and sell it to somebody in Ireland and the blockchain would say, oh, that person's in Ireland. I don't have to worry about them being accredited. Sure. One really interesting investor that I read about is your university, which I think is pretty uncommon uh, for a university to just invest in a venture fund, especially in crypto. How did that come about? Well, universities invest, uh, university endowments invest in venture capital funds all the time. Uh, they definitely add it uh, as an asset class. I think what's unique about Rochester Institute of Technology is that they're the first major university to own a tokenized uh, venture fund. Now, there are not that many of us. Uh, we're the very first evergreen tokenized venture fund. There are others that came out, Spice VC and uh, Blockchain, uh, Blockchain Capital, uh, they came out. Uh, but we are evergreen. Uh, and, and what that means is we're constantly raising money and constantly increasing the AUM, the assets under management uh, for the fund. And, and versus the other ones. So is a non-evergreen one, like the numbered funds, like, you know, blockchain capital one right. or two, or does that mean something else? That's exactly it. And, and generally, okay. what, you know, generally, if you think about venture capital, right, it, they're closed end. They generally, uh, you're locked up for 10 years. They have capital calls uh, for the first four to five years, and then you're harvesting the last five. Most venture funds have extensions because it takes a while for the portfolio to exit. And that's it. They have a, they have a closed pool of investors. So what you do is when you raise a venture fund, you go out and you ask a bunch of investors, hey, invest. And, and you look at the PPM, the, the private placement memorandum, and it might say it's a $40 million fund, and you do your first close at $20 million. So you go raise 20 million, you close that 20 million, you start investing, and then you raise another 20 million, and then the fund is done, it's closed. Our fund is always raising money, meaning it's evergreen, and, it's, oh, and we're always making investments, and new investors come in at the net asset value or the mark-to-market -market of the portfolio at the time. So it's a whole different philosophy uh, around venture capital. And the, and serves the dip, yeah. And we believe we believe that it's unfair for only major financial institutions and high net worths and family offices to have access to venture capital. We think that in general, there's a whole group of people that want access to venture capital. They understand the risk of venture capital and they want a part of it. Number one. Number two. We also believe that this investment vehicle should be open worldwide, globally, mm -hmm. to people in all countries and all walks of life. And so that's really the reason why we decided, let's use blockchain, we're investing in blockchain, let's use blockchain to make this uh, venture capital asset class available to a whole new group of investors worldwide. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Would it be possible for a non-accredited investor in the US uh, to, it's like a two-part or two, invest in something like an enzyme vault on like MLN or a D-hedge and could one of those hold your asset? 
So like if you wanted exposure to you, or is there not a way for a non-accredited investor? I don't believe there's a way for a non-accredited investor. I I ultimately- Vault couldn't buy. Yeah, I ultimately believe that uh, uh, the regulatory climate is going to change and it's going to open up to a broader, uh, open up asset classes like this to a broader group of, uh, of people. Um, and, and I, I believe that that's where things are going. Uh, you know, when you look at, when you look at crypto, uh, people are buying, I think the reason why people are buying crypto, they're buying Bitcoin, they're buying all these altcoins, they're buying the same opportunities that we're buying, we're just buying them earlier. I believe that, that, that that's an indicator of the macro trends. I think people want diversification. They will want to be moving into different asset classes uh, and, and get that, to, uh, that alpha, right? There's some really interesting studies around, Grayscale did a beautiful one on uh, asset allocation. And they basically said that if you allocate, and this is back tested over the last, I think, five years, uh, if you add 5% exposure uh, of crypto, top basket crypto, to a 60-40 standard portfolio, your your risk return attribution increases uh, 52%. So you're getting 52% more yield, more more return. Your sharp ratio goes way up. So you're getting diversification, and you're only taking 5% capital risk. And you know there aren't that many free lunches in in investing, but that's about as close to a free lunch as it comes. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that something like Grayscale today, the Bitcoin Trust, what are they, 55 billion? Uh, you huge. know, they're huge. And in fact, I was on a panel with the founder of Grayscale three, four years ago when he was starting it, and they were just kicking it off. So I think what it's showing is just the pent up demand for this asset class, and quite frankly, the diversification. And then you layer in the macro trends, you know, government's printing money like, like, you know, there's no tomorrow. It just, it just adds proverbial fuel onto the fire. Definitely. Speaking of kind of, you know, monetary policy, you have an investment in a project called Endow. Right. And I'm kind of curious if, if that's uh, like, is that like a precursor to Olympus? Is it something completely different? Like what are kind of the difference? What is Endow? And then like, how's that different from something like Olympus, which kind of has its own programmatic monetary policy. It, in fact, uh, uh, Endow was out before Olympus. Um, and sure. yeah, and it, it is very much like that. Uh, when we saw the team, uh, the Endow uh, team come in, we were blown away. Uh, it is basically, if you think about it, it's a currency that is aware of its monetary, uh, its, 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 uh, its supply and demand condition. And it's actually using algorithms to adjust those and adapt to overall market conditioning. Uh, you know, Bitcoin, we love Bitcoin. We're early Bitcoin, um, you know, uh, we're big Bitcoin uh, buyers, we're holders, we believe in it. But we also believe that, uh, you know, Bitcoin is really being used as a long-term store of value. And it wasn't really generally designed to do that. Uh, and, and we believe in proof of stake and we really believe that the market needs, if you think about it, long-term store of value is actually the largest use case out there. It, it, it ultimately, especially in the face of devaluing currencies and, and reserve currencies mm-hmm. and all of those kinds of things. So when the Endow team came in, they said, hey, look, that's what we're after. What we're trying to do here is create a, a, uh, a, se- a self-sovereign proof of stake currency. Uh, 
And that's key. Self-sovereign, meaning I'm not giving my currency. I'm not giving my keys up to anyone. Mm -hmm. I'm holding on to my keys and I'm holding on to my currency in my wallet. And the blockchain itself is what's going to allocate or delegate my currency to the staking nodes without giving up custody. And then if I want to run my own node, I can do that. And then I can stake my own currency. But if I don't even know anything about nodes or staking, just by holding Endow in my wallet, I can earn more. And, and so that's really what, what Endow is trying to do is really create this proof of stake currency uh, with, that has an adaptive monetary policy uh, that has some uh, controls on it that try to reduce volatility. Uh, it, it's early that the, the, the um, we're, we're big fans, we're big investors in the project. Uh, there's around, I, I think, uh, you know, close to 15,000 um, people that are holding the currency. I believe around 40 million of it was issued. It's available on KuCoin, Bittrex, Bitmart, Liquid, um, and growing. Uh, and I think I, I think the market is really moving uh, in that direction. That proof of stake, uh, you know, uh, staking is the new mining. I guess you could say. Sure. Yeah. And I think with the you know Olympus's really dramatic year or dramatic month or whatever it was this year, because right. I, like, I feel like it was a short-lived type cycle that could you know revive. People at least have. Uh, the mental models to like be able to conceptualize something like this and like understand it more quickly. Yeah, there, there's there's a weird there's a weird dynamic. I, I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you. I could figure have it have it figured out. I don't. Um, but there's a really weird dynamic, and that is, and it, and it plays to kind of the product adoption cycle. Um, mm -hmm. So when you when you when you think about it, right, all markets follow that product diffusion theory, where the visionaries, yeah, early come adopters, in, right, and, the... and then you got the early adopters and the in the mainstream, you know, early majority. And if you think about most of the people in the crypto space today are probably early adopters, maybe some early majority, but your early majority are not going to put up with the crap that the early adopters are putting up with. Yeah, the early majority right. is mostly holding custo like custody to, or not self custody, whatever you call that. Like, that's right. That's right. They're holding. They're holding stuff out on yeah. the exchange. They're holding stuff exactly. right. They're not holding self custody. Whereas I think that I believe that there's a whole class of people that are going to come into blockchain. They're going to come into crypto, and they're going to really like really get something like an end because it's so simple to hold and earn versus. Some of these other projects where, you know, you, you need a PhD to try to figure out what the heck's going on. And I and so I guess what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that maybe Endow might be a little a uh, little early, but it's really seeing uh, real rapid adoption, primarily outside the U.S. I think there's about 30 people from 37 different countries owning it. So long winded answer saying that, you know, the market the market's early and there's a whole class of people that need to come into the market that will come into the market that aren't going to tolerate a lot of this other stuff. Very interesting. Uh, I want to ask you, obviously you conceptualize these projects in terms of traditional valuation companies, et cetera, but also in terms of networks, one kind of like piece of FUD that always I have difficulty with, with a lot of altcoins is just generally speaking, what like the degree of node participation rate is like how many people are truly contributing to the decentralization of the network. Like, you know, besides the core team, because, you know, I know a lot of crypto enthusiasts, you could say, but very few people who even, you know, run a Bitcoin node or a Lightning node or 
an Ethereum node or like any of these kind of fundamental pieces. Uh, so is that like a kind of, I don't want to overuse the term systemic risk, but something a lot of people don't think about that there's just not huge amounts of distinct parties actually running the networks or is that not a, like a legitimate concern for some of these kind of like, I would say you're, a, I would say you are a one percenter. You are a one percenter to even understand that. I, and I agree with you. So you, most people don't even get that. Most people that are out there, uh, when they think about this, uh, they're, they're not thinking about these things as networks. And that's what they are. They need to be valued that way. They need to be evaluated that way. They need to be um, measured that way. Uh, and ultimately, what, what we're doing, I, I love Niall Ferguson's book, uh, The Tower and the Square. Have you read this book? It came out a while ago. But basically, I've not. I heard I, I, my only advantage is hearing you make a similar analogy in a podcast on research. But yeah, I, I'm sure there's a lot more nuance to what you gave. Yeah, and, and by the way, it's not a crypto book. It's a history book. It's a book about yeah, how, yeah. it's a it's it's a book about value and how value has gone from, uh, you know, a world of of towers to the town square, which is which are institutions, right? The banks, etc., to the real world, which is networks. It's the town square. Right. It talks about the Rothschilds and how they were smugglers. And the reason why they created all their val their, their value is because they were smugglers and they, they had a network of, of smugglers all over the world. And, and the British government used them to move gold around uh, during, you know, during the wars. So so anyway, um, and, and I love it. I love that analogy because that's what this is about. So if we're investing in these networks and they're growing or they're not growing, or they're performing some value, or they have some velocity, then the way we evaluate these things, the way we value these things, the way we uh, predict or try to uh, or try to estimate what they're going to do really has to be about how we understand networks and how they grow, who's on them, what kind of nodes, are they super nodes, how many people are staking, how much is being staked, what's the total value locked, what's the velocity, and and by the way, one set of analysis for each network is it may not be the same. In other words, you might have one network that is really all about velocity. And, and, and so you really want to look at it as comprehensive, how comprehensive it is, how fast it is and what the overall velocity, whereas something like an endow, you don't care about velocity. In fact, you want it to be almost dead because you want what you really want is total value locked. You want people in a long-term store of value to basically take their currency loaded in the network and just, just kind of hold it. Um, and, and so you really got to look at those And and I think, I think you're, if, you know, from my perspective, you're probably in the 1% and I, I, I bet you it's 1%, maybe 5% of the population that really grocks that, that really understands mm -hmm. guys, we're folks, we're people, we're looking at networks here. Um, and, and, and how those networks, you know, how those networks grow and, and, and that's, that's what you got to. Uh, and, the, and by the way, it's also there's a huge amount of behavioral kind of dynamic to it. Uh, you know, the whole FOMO, the whole, you know, pump and dump, yeah. it's, you know, and, and all of those kinds of things. And I, I'm, a, I'm a long term, I'm a long term buyer and a long term holder. I'm not going to pump and dump anything, uh, you know, because my, my analogy that I always say is, you know, selling now is like, you know, doubling your money on Amazon at an IPO thinking you're a rock star. Sure. Like, that's just ridiculous. If you really truly believe that only 10% of the world is here and that 90% of the world is going to be here, uh, then why the heck would you be selling right now? Um, 
Whereas I think I think what I've seen in the crypto world is everybody's just chasing that speculative gain, and they don't even understand what the heck it is uh, that's that's happening. You know, is it Doge? You know, that, and Doge is a good example. What the heck is that? Right? It's just pure speculative speculation. That's to me, that's not good. No, I agree. Uh, that's kind of you know talking again about the networks. That's kind of a fundamental. I don't know how much you thought you've put into the Solana ecosystem. I, I didn't see any Solana bets in, in your portfolio, at least, at least any explicitly. I, I, I got to tell you, one of, the, yeah. one of the biggest mistakes I made, we met the team and I don't know what was, it was in the, in the middle of, it was like right as COVID happened. It was early, mm -hmm. it was way early and it was super early. And we met the team, we loved them. And it was just, we were reeling with COVID and we just, <laughs> Uh, I'm kicking myself, uh, you know. So you don't think there's a, a network like problem necessarily with Solana from a infrastructure layer, just because I've not dug into this too deep, but from what, what I understand, like the capital requirements to participate uh, in a actual hardware sense are just pretty extreme. And like, is that an issue? I think they all, I think, question. yeah, I, I think they do have issues. Um, and I think a lot so of them. The Bitcoin have... node was like $250, What's that? Right, which is pretty affordable. Like a Raspberry Pi for Bitcoin with a terabyte of storage will give me another right. five or six years. Yeah. And that was like a 200, $300 entry point. Right, right. Yeah, I, 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 um, I think it's early. Uh, so I don't, I don't generally, uh, I think there are some, some issues there, uh, but I think it's early. Uh, and I think there's uh, a lot of excitement around it. Um, you know, these are all, these are all, I mean, they're all super, super early. Uh, and that's the tough thing. Like I love Hedera. I love these guys. I, you know, we're we're an investor in in Hedera. Uh, we love what they're doing. We we you know, uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming down the down the pike. I think, um, and you know, obviously they're Carnegie Mellon guys, which I have some affinity yep. to uh, being at Carnegie Mellon. So we love those. We love the Casper Casper Labs. Um, that team doing some interesting things as well. But I I don't I think there's a lot a lot going on um in that in that arena uh and it's it's got a long way uh, a long way uh to go but eventually it's going to come down to adoption eventually it's going to cost what are the cost dynamics the adoption adoption of hardware or adoption of, of the network of the tech of the protocol yep mm -hmm. yep so one other startup that you have you know like i said at the beginning you've had a long and interesting career uh, is you had a very interesting, I don't know if it was intentionally a gaming startup, but it had gaming applications, right? Your kind of chat box, is it a chat box or more voice kind of feature? Uh, so what is kind of your background in the gaming side of things and some of your takes? Uh, so your background, you know, non-crypto gaming in the past decade or so, yeah. and then the perspective that gives you on some of the developments we're seeing. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in the, uh, in the gaming. So I was the chief product officer of a company called Vivox. And you might know VVox if you're on a on, on an Xbox or a PlayStation. You might see the logo every single day because we 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 basically invented spatial um, voice over IP for gaming, and uh, that company was was purchased by Unity and is now baked into everything from World of Tanks to Fortnite, P PlayStation Network. Uh, and essentially when you're on Fortnite and you're smack talking, you know, the guy you just beat, uh, that's VVox. So I spent a lot of time, uh, in that space, uh, primarily, um, you know, uh, 
all, all around this, this voice over IP uh, world. Uh, also in the virtual world, uh, kind of, you know, Second Life, that, that type of thing. They did all the voice for Second Life as well. In fact, most of the technology was really invented for Second Life. You know, it has distance attenuation so that when you're yeah. talking to somebody, the, the volume goes down, all of that good stuff. Yeah. So what are some of the things you think about in, in the gaming space? Is that like an, it decentralized gaming? Like what are the kind of unique advantages to, like is, is it something that has unique advantages for a gaming universe to be decentralized versus, or is that something where we're just kind of like, well, let's throw a blockchain on it because we're... we're <laughs> I, I I believe that uh, so one of the areas that we're looking at right now we're we're getting ready to make an investment in the space is the NFT side and I and I can't I can't stand that the press and everybody's talking about NFTs about the NFTs themselves like I I don't care about the NFTs themselves. Uh, and what they're selling for. And this guy paid a hundred thousand for that. And yeah. I, I don't care. All right. To me, they're beanie, they're digital beanie babies. Like most people don't even know what beanie babies were, but you know, what was it? 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, everybody was buying beanie babies. What I'm collector hype. What's that? Collector hype. Collection hype. Yeah. Collection hype. Right. Yeah. You know, got to, you know, Pokemon got to collect them all. For me, for me, what NFTs really mean are decentralized digital rights management royalty management everybody in the world you know phase one of the internet was what decentralization of content meaning move the world where you had abc cbs nbc and a couple of movie studios and that was it and they owned it they owned media and the newspapers they owned it and now we we have a world where all of us produce content micro content, Instagram, you name it, videos, podcasts, everybody is a content creator and a content sharer. And it turns out that all of our royalties, all of our digital rights, uh, and all our royalty contracts are still the old system. It's like we're still using the, you know, the, the Medici dynasty banking system. We're still using the, the media, you know, system that was the, the right system that was created, you know, um, you know, hundreds of years with pen and paper record keeping. That's right. And so it's crazy. And so for me, what, what NFTs represent is now all of a sudden I can, I can write smart contracts on a blockchain that have my royalty rights so that when I create content, you know, I, I just saw this really cool content, this NFT platform. I go in, I take a picture. Okay. I upload it. I say, I want to make an NFT out of it. And then what I do is I say, okay, I'm going to donate this much to charity, this much to the promoter, this much to the market, this much on secondary sale. So basically with a bunch of drop down boxes, I'm, I'm basically creating a digital royalties contract or digital. And then I can upload the, all my, my actual license to it. All that's packaged up, embedded right into the NFT. And now that NFT can be sold on Shopify or, you know, OpenSea or, or, or on Instagram or Twitter or wherever it goes. Uh, and it's going to be managed uh, on that, on that blockchain. I could, I could, I could put uh, off, I could put rights to it, you know? So now let's say I'm, you know, Kanye West and I do an NFT and I, and what it does is it gives me a lifetime privilege to, uh, 
to Adidas to go, you know, get Yeezys before anybody else does. I don't exactly. know. Right. That's, that's right. Cause people say, well, I could just right click copy. Well, you can't right click copy that. Right. So exactly. I, I think I, I don't, it's the representation versus the, the, the ownership. Yeah. So, so to me, th this is bigger. I, I don't know. It, it could be bigger than, than money itself. <laughs> right. Thinking how much of our world is based on media. So, so that's a, another area that I, I'm, I'm pretty darn. Those are the only NFTs I've purchased actually are access NFTs yeah. where there's a content creator I like yep. and there's, you know, privileged access to things that they produce or potential privileged access to, I mean, just again, you're just a super fan with uh, super privileges right. that are provable. That's right. And then potentially distributable. So those are the only ones I've purchased. Yeah. And, and, so and by the way, I don't turn the you... camera around. You can see my, you know, 50 <laughs> copies of the, of the Gary V. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, by the way, I don't think we figured it out. Like this is new, oh, right? It's like, it's like having yeah. all of a sudden we've got this technology and they're like, whoa. Right. Um, I saw this really cool, cool uh, company that, you know, you basically put yield on an NFT. You know, all kinds of all kinds of DeFi constructs you could add to to that to that royalty contract. Um, it, it's, yeah, there's one where they, they're like bonds and then the bonds themselves are artistic. That's right. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool stuff. And, and I just I, you know, what a time. Right. And, and for, for me, I, I kind of think of it. I'm I'm really uh, I spent a lot of time just thinking about the macro side of it as well. Right, just the, the 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 Dow of it, the 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 reason to be, why this is so important right now, you know. And I, I say, it, you know, fifty percent of the world, less than fifty percent of the world has a bank account. Yep. But but more than more than seventy five percent of the world has one of these. Depends on who you look. It's as high as eighty percent, as low as sixty five, seventy two percent. I think I've seen the latest numbers. So now all of a sudden, you've got a whole group of people that can now be part of the economy, be, be part of the permissionless, the, the permissionless value. And by the way, they become value generators. They're not value suckers. They're not, they're, they're not sinks. They're, they're sources. And that, that, so now all of a sudden the global economy just goes up, right? By, by what, by what percentage? Um, to me that, wow, that's, that's exciting stuff. And, you know, as an investor, the alpha there, is 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 going to be um you can't even i don't think you're going to be able to measure the crazy alpha that's going to come out of all of this at scale but owning some of the, at, the fundamental pieces yeah at scale definitely so if you had to be a founder in this ecosystem let's say you don't have a ton of capital and the way you want to create capital is by starting a project right you have you don't have the successful exits or roles you've had in the past what are some of the pieces of the ecosystem that you'd personally be building in if that was kind of your only option um, if I'm trying to understand the question, you're, you're what area, what area, what topic would I start it, or how would I start? Maybe a problem. I mean, if you have a super narrow problem that you're like, oh, I'd be, you know, building the, I'm, this is the first that comes to mind just cause it's the episode we're publishing today, but like, you know, Ethereum doesn't have private transactions. So I'd be building something like Aztec to like make private transactions. Or dust networks, we're right? Like, we're an investor in dust. Yep. Yep. Another, another example. Yeah, That's, I'm only saying mine cause it's a top of mind based on the episode I'm publishing <laughs> uh, today, but, uh, perfect example as well. But what, like, if you had to be a builder and you had to like, you know, the only way you could contribute in this, you didn't have capital to invest. So you kind of had to start a company. Uh, what would just be some of the opportunities that you think are, I don't know if they're low hanging fruit or not could be based on, you know, the skills that you have. But yeah, look, I think you gotta be, like, first of all, you gotta be knowledgeable of what, of what you're doing. I think, uh, number one, number two, you gotta be passionate about it. 
Because think about it. If if you're gonna if you're gonna go spend a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and sleepless nights thinking about something, you better love it. Because if you don't love it, you're out. I'm out. Like forget this. Okay. So it's got to be something that you really truly enjoy and have an interest in, and and are excited are are excited about it. The general the general mistake I think young entrepreneurs make is they're too eager to act and they don't do the research up front. And, and, and I mean, really learn what it is that they're going after and who the players are and, and how it's how it works out. So for me, I think you got to do the research. You got to be passionate about it. You got to want it. And then um, you can really uh, jump in. And I don't believe you need a lot of money to go after these mm -hmm. markets. I believe that if you're passionate enough and you have a good enough team of people, one or two people, you can really create some pretty amazing things. I would be less worried. It's, 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 it's all about, um, you know, in the Navy, um, there's a, there's a fighter pilot who t basically wrote the book on fighter combat. It's mm -hmm. called, uh, the OODA loop. Uh, and it's what the seals orient. Uh, yeah. Observe, yeah, orient, like decide that. and act. Um, and, uh, you know, Harvard has a case study on it and there's a book yep. got written on it. And in fact, agile software was built on basically the premise of Boyd's OODA loop. And if you look at Ray Dalio and his book, the principles, and he calls it a loop, mm -hmm. it's the OODA loop. Okay. And, and basically what it yep. means is, is m make decisions fast with as much information as you have and, and, and adjust and adjust and adjust because you're going to be wrong and it's okay to be wrong. Just do it quickly and adjust. And, and it's that feed, it's a fast feedback loop, right? Uh, you know, it's kind of like the difference between waterfall software development. Why does that suck? Because you spend six, if you spend six months developing something planning. and planning and building, and then it's wrong, it's a big mistake. Whereas if you just do it in one week cycle, Two -week you make plans. a mistake, yep. what's your risk? Same thing here. So what I would say is Lean startups, the same model as well. Yeah. yeah. So what I would say is just get stuff out there, you know, just get stuff out there and, and try it and, and see. Uh, but also here's the other important point. Don't forget what you're building. You're building a network. And if you're building a network, what does that mean? It means you need nodes, you need connectors, you need other people and in, in your ecosystem, all helping you. You're not going to do it on your own. You're not going to do it as a tower. You're going to do it as a, as a network. So, you know, build that network. Your job as an entrepreneur is, 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 is to create a gravity field. I always say an entrepreneur is like a gravity field. If you're doing it right and you're passionate, if you're, if you're full of passion, passion is like, like the black hole. It just sucks people in. Mm -hmm. right? you ever notice if you're really excited about something, all of a sudden everybody's joining you? It's, they're listening, they're listening they get excited with you. They want to join you and they want to be part of that. That's, that's what it is. So you're building a network and building a network is what? Connecting nodes. And, and, and if you're going to pick one node over the other node to join your network, which node do you want? You want a super connector, right? You don't want a node that's not out in, out in the South Pole that has one guy connected to it. You want the node that's got millions of people. You connect your node to that node and boom. Uh, and that's what it's, that's what we're, that's what we're doing here. I know it sounds high level and kind of like, you know, mom sure. and pop, but you really, I think you really got to think through it as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I, uh, hear a lot of people, especially college students and people who kind of like are ambitious or whatever, or like, how do I meet interesting people? And the answer is kind of like, you know, do interesting things and then 
the gravity kind of forms. Yep. Uh, but I kind of want to, uh, that was a good answer conceptually, but I'm kind of curious if there's any, any more specifics. So I, a way to rephrase it that might be helpful is like, where are some industries in crypto or problem spaces that you kind of think to yourself, if only there are more engineers on this problem? Like, we I, I, Yeah, the NFT side, and I, I again, can I can I just call it digital rights, decentral digital rights management? Because I, right. well, I think this is back right. to this is this comes this is like a kind of fundamental thing with what I was talking about with Bitcoin and, and networks and nodes is I think what's really helpful for people is just to like speak the full phrase yeah. right because like people have like associated NFT with digital that's art. right and it's not but like if you say if you say non fungible token right. then people might actually think about what it represents <laughs> so it's like, yeah. yeah or you just or you just call it like you know ERC seven twenty one inspired like technology that's right or that's right I, I think that that whole market is just. It just needs a separate word. It's, 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 it's digital rights management. It's DD, uh, decentralized digital rights management, DDRM. Uh, that yep. sucks. But anyway, um, token based. Owner there you go. Right. I mean, you know, my, yeah. my, my son is in the, the word says it all. That's, that's, the, that's the problem. Yeah, my son's in the, the, the word says it all. What's that? And the acronym says nothing. That's right. So the, the acronym says nothing, right. but if you spell it out, you're like non fungible tokens, yeah. which just means, you know, that's right. That's right. You know Things that are unique. Yeah, my son's in the esports arena. Meaning comes from unique. Yeah, yeah. and he, so your son does esports. Yeah, right he does esports, and you know that's that's a whole you know uh, really interesting uh, interesting space. I think with the digital rights management, um, you know, all about streaming and how do you manage that and how do you play that uh, membership models. Have people really thought about membership models when it comes to digital rights management and how does that play out? I believe there's a lot of opportunity there uh, to start a company, start a project, and they're 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 getting funding. These deals are getting funding at crazy valuations. So one thing I've heard it's kind of, so it's kind of like an analog of uh, so I've heard a lot of investors, and even when I was you know doing the job search and applying as like an analyst to a lot of different funds, uh, they're saying you know what are your predictions for DAO tooling, right? That's like everyone is focused on DAO tooling because yeah. DAOs are a thing. Yeah. But there's no doubt tooling for like actually governing these yeah. things. So you're kind of saying like a membership tooling, membership infrastructure yeah. that that have the that point. has the that has the media layer. Um, and and by the way, I haven't really seen a whole heck of a lot of DAO tooling that I think is really great uh, or flexible enough, yeah. right? Uh, but sure, that's another area. Um, another area is just kind of Web three, and I, and again, as Web three is just so generic, right? But uh, you know what? What does it mean to truly be uh, decentralized web? How does that play out? How would you? How would you? How would you imagine Twitter uh, as a decentralized platform, or Instagram, or um, e-commerce, or Amazon, or some portion of that? Uh, and then how does that? How does that play out? Um, those are those are super high level stuff on the on the micro level stuff. I just think, you know, royalty management, digital rights management, platforms for that, um, and then you know, then there's a whole lot of other just kind of, um, you know, infrastructural problems as well that are going to grow up. We're really excited about decentralized exchanges. It makes no sense to me to have a decentralized world and have a centralized exchange. Absolutely zero sense long-term. Besides just more clear regulation and the status quo. Yeah. I don't sense. see, I don't see it lasting. I can't imagine. I just don't see it lasting. I think. Like the order book model in yeah. general or just yeah. the. Yeah. yeah. I think it's all got to go decentralized. Has to. By definition, has to. It's too big of a risk. Even for. Uh, 
let's say like late majority type adopters? For the late, I, so so here's the opportunity as an entrepreneur: build a decentralized exchange that 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 a late majority can can understand and use. What does it mean? What does it mean? Here, here's another here's another thing, right? So so if if you're thinking about it in terms of problems and solutions, what does it mean to truly create a sovereign wallet? so that all your digital assets are under your keys in your control and you have custody. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And by the way, the, the, the you there, what if that you is a corporation? What if that you is a partnership? What if that you mm -hmm. is, is husband, yeah, corporation husband and wife? Wants sovereign ownership of their keys as the corporation, but then what does it mean for what individuals within the corporation have the, you know, the codes or That's the- right the key to the locker with the information or whatever as well. So those are really interesting That's questions. Right. By the way, Endow has all that, has has a thing called chain code on the blockchain that allows you to create multi-sig wallets and, and okay. write the code. So it says, okay, I need two of those, or can I do a revoke and replace? So if I hold a, if I hold the parent, if I hold the master key, what if I create two valet keys? And if the two valet keys come, they can revoke the, and replace the, the primary key. So those are kinds of things that I think, again, you got to look at it. The late majority has got to be able to work this stuff. And it's, we're just not there yet. We'll get there. It's just, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, in the early, when I did Galt, the first, uh, the first, uh, you know, financial service on the internet, do you know, you couldn't, you couldn't connect to the internet and windows unless you down, downloaded a, this DLL called a WinSock DLL that nobody knew what the hell it was. And everybody went around you know, and, 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 oh, by the way, there was no internet to go download it from. So how the heck did you get it? Get a copy. He had to copy. Yeah, whatever Everybody's the copying around. Physical storage device That's was. right. And then there was this guy, David, uh, I think his, uh, David Spool, I think his name was. I don't know. He created a company called Spry. And they created this product called Internet in a Box. It was basically a bunch of floppy disks that had the Winsock DLL in it and the Mosaic browser. And it, <laughs> it allowed you to connect to the internet, you know. Anyway. I'm going on here. So I think there's a lot of interesting, as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of really cool, interesting concepts that, uh, you know, that you could jump on. Well, uh, I think I have one final question for you. It's not really uh, thematically a final question, but going into, you know, the next year or so, what would you kind of, because I know you have some bets in RegTech and I had to look up that acronym, full transparency to like know what that was in regulation technology, basically. Yeah. Uh, what do you think are some like regulatory best case scenarios for the next few years for the industry broadly? Well, my 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 high level concept about regulatory and compliance is that regu reg reg uh, regulatory and compliance are essential because if you think about them, uh, if you think about going back to the product diffusion theory, uh, they're not essential for a visionary; they don't care. Uh, they're not essential for an early adopter. They don't care. Oh, I lost my money. Oh, that guy scammed me. Oh, whatever. I don't care. Okay, because they're too enamored with the returns and the potential of alpha and what's going on. By definition, early adopters are people who aren't afraid of the pain for the gain. In fact, they almost brag about it. Okay. Whereas for the early majority, they do care. And so what I've seen is every time a regulatory body comes out with clarity on what is happening here and people can 
uh, understand those guardrails, the market, what, what, what happens is the markets go up. Why do the markets go up? Because there's now a whole group of people who were afraid of it before, who are now not, they're still afraid of it, but not as much. And they're willing to put their, they're willing to take their risk. They're willing to put their money in. So for me, regulatory clarity is important. It signals to the rest of the market, this is okay, the water's fine, there aren't any sharks, come on in. And so the more we do to educate uh, the regulators on what's going on and why this is important and don't do anything stupid. So for me, I feel like, um, I, I believe that the, uh, the regulators understand the, the scale of this and how big it is. Uh, and so I think we're going to start seeing more and more and more clarity as uh, as we uh, circle around in this and more controls. Right. Two years ago, nobody, nobody KYC, AML, what? And now it's everywhere mm -hmm. and it's essential. So I, I think that's what you're going to start seeing as more, and more okay. people well, enter that, enter the market. I know it's like long winded again, long winded, but I, I think it's important to understand that. Where are we in the market? We're still early, so we got a long way to go, and that's okay. Well, I think we will close things off there, Rob. Thank you so yeah, much for coming on the podcast, sharing yeah. lots of interesting ideas with us. And uh, I don't know if you have you know, like a public brand online or anything, but if people are curious about your funds, curious about any of your individual thinking, yeah, uh, what would be the best places to keep up with that? I'm I'm uh, at Rob Frasca on Twitter. And our website is CosmoX.com after Cosmo Medici, CosmoX.com. Mm -hmm. And you can take a look at our portfolio. I do a lot of videos and, uh, you know, be happy to have you follow me. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that wraps up this fun solo interview with Rob Frasca. I enjoyed it. Kyle's not here to say if he enjoyed it, but you know what? I'm going to make him listen to it and he's going to like it. Uh, three takeaways from me from this conversation. The first one, kind of a subtle takeaway, but just the common pattern among successful entrepreneurs to recommend Ayn Rand's books. Just interesting side note there, Atlas Shrugged. Still need to read it. I've read The Fountainhead, found it great. If you've read books from Tim Ferriss, like Tools of Titans or Tribe of Mentors, he always asks these other fascinating entrepreneurs, successful people, et cetera, like what some of their most recommended books are. And again and again, we see Ayn Rand pop up. So just pointing that out as an interesting pattern that Rob also fits into. Second takeaway is about the kind of gravity and serendipity analogy that Rob was making in this conversation. That's a lot of the motivation for why Kyle and I started this podcast was kind of recognizing that if you do interesting things, interesting things will happen to you. If you're in interesting places with other interesting people, just you'll have these opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have. We saw that in like a recent episode with Matt Slater, how living in San Francisco, that's how he discovered Bitcoin so early. And by doing interesting things in interesting places with interesting people, he kind of had that opportunity that really propelled his career. We saw that for Rob going to Carnegie Mellon with a ton of other smart people passionate about these interesting things. Uh, and you can kind of get your own serendipity by doing interesting things online if you're not in a interesting physical location. Third takeaway is just about how amazing the fundamental shift in startup costs have changed for the better. Uh, he was talking about the extremely expensive infrastructure it took for him just to be able to put up the website in the early internet. I mean, $20,000 of equipment costs just to get started. And now things are like pennies or tens of dollars, you know, maybe a couple SaaS software and you're out the door, like $50 a month. It is completely different. And we should all be grateful for that and use that as motivation to take this great opportunity to start businesses and do interesting things 
That's all I have to say for this conversation with Rob Frasca. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to support the show, which I hope you do, because we appreciate your support, definitely make sure you're subscribed wherever you're watching or listening, whether that's YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, et cetera, and just share the show with a friend. We've got a lot of episodes. They cover a lot of interesting topics. I'm sure you know someone who'd find one of those things interesting. And if you really can't wait till next week when we publish the next episode, go through the feed, check out one of the ones from the backlog. They're all similar to this one. We don't ask about current events or anything like that. That would make them dated. So I'd encourage you to do that until next time. See you then. Bye-bye.